God is good? And all the time? Good morning, my name is Nathan Parikh. I'm blessed to serve as the discipleship pastor here at Hallmark. Uh, pastor John, his wife Joy, are on our well-deserved vacations. We'll be praying for them as they travel. I'm excited to continue on our journey uh, on the pathway, the purpose, through the book of Esther. And so if you would uh, open your Bibles with me to the book of Esther, chapter 5. We'll be starting in chapter 5 this morning. If you're new, thanks so much for making us a part of your weekend. Uh, there's a QR code that you can scan. If you would, just fill that out and let us know that this is your first time here. We'd be happy uh, to send you some information about the church. You can take part in what God is doing here. You also get a free gift card to Chick-fil-A to boost. So hopefully you guys will take advantage of that. As a quick recap of where we've been, um, the people of God, uh, the people of Israel, the Jews, they've been living in exile. First, they were uh, deported under the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar. And now they are living under the rule of the Persian Empire. It's this vast, huge empire. And it just so happens that by chance, that out of this massive empire that spans nations and cultures and countries, that one woman is chosen to be queen. And this woman just so happens to be a daughter of Israel. Esther. And then, of course, like any good story, you have to have the bad guy, the villain. And we're introduced to him pretty quickly. His name is Haman. And it turns out that he and the Jews have this ancient feud because of the failure of King Saul way back when. And he has an intense desire to see the people of Israel destroyed. And when you look through scripture, when you look through history, you see that pattern repeated over and over and over again. Whether it is Haman, whether it is Hitler, whether it is Hamas today, we see that there has always been a spiritual war against the people of God. Because it's not just the people that are doing it. It is Satan and the evil forces of this world that want to see God's people, God's nation destroyed. And so this morning, I know, I think we're all probably aware of what's been going on in Israel over the last 24 hours or so. And I figured we're here talking about Esther and how the Jews are on the brink of annihilation. And then we turn on the news and we see that God's people are yet again under attack. I thought it would be appropriate, and Pastor John thought it would be appropriate as well, if we took some time here this morning and just pause in our service and pray over that situation. So if you would, pray with me. Father God, thank you so much for the opportunity we have to come before you in prayer. Father, this morning we come to you with heavy hearts when we look at the images and we hear the stories of what is happening in your land. We see that uh, there is evil in this world and they are attacking your people, Father. But Lord, I know that Satan wants both sides to suffer. He wants both sides to end up in anger and confusion and most importantly, separated from you. Father, I pray for your protection over uh, the people of Israel. I pray for your protection over the innocent people that are caught on both sides. Father, I pray for your protection over the believers that are caught in the crossfire, for the missionaries that are currently stuck there. I pray for your hand of blessing that you would bring a supernatural peace to that land. Father, most importantly, Lord, I pray that in the midst of this terror, in the midst of this uh, just wickedness, Father, that you would draw people to yourself, that the name of Jesus would be made great, that just like you have always done, that you would turn this darkness this morning into rejoicing. You would turn this death into life, Father. And that is something only you can do. But Father, here I'm praying with my fellow brothers and sisters 
for the peace of Israel, for the peace of Jerusalem, and that you would bring this conflict to an end. We pray and ask all these things in the name of Jesus, our King. Amen. So as we jump back into Esther, Esther, she was in a place of security and safety as the queen, right? She was elevated from being a nobody to living in the palace, a pretty sweet gig. But then this plot by Haman comes to light. And and Esther's first response, like Pastor John shared with us last week, was to say, hey, I'm going to stay out of it. I have a pretty sweet gig here. There's really not much I can do. I'm just the queen, you know, like the, the king doesn't really consult me on this type of stuff. But Mordecai calls her out. He says, hey, he, he, he drops that famous line on her. Who knows if you were put into the kingdom for such a time as this? Timing is everything. God is a God of perfect timing. And a phrase that I want you to remember this morning is not by chance, but by direction. Not by chance, but by direction. See, the things that seem to just happen, all the coincidences that we see in the book of Esther, the things that seem to just happen in your life, the things that seem to just happen on the world stage, they are not happening by chance. The world is not just free-floating through the universe and things are just happening out of control. I'm so thankful this morning that as we walk through the word, we will see that God is in complete control. He is the ultimate and perfect director. He is so good that he can take the evil that men do. He can take the evil that Satan wants to accomplish and still use that to accomplish his purposes. Amen? It is not by chance. It is by direction. You know, how often when you're watching a movie, uh, do you hear during the movie, in the script, how often is the director's name mentioned? Never, right? You're, you're watching Star Wars and, and Luke is about to take on Darth Vader. He didn't say, George Lucas, help me out. Or when the uh, people in Jurassic Park are running for their life from the, from the T-Rex. They're not saying, Steven Spielberg, what do we do? The director's name is never mentioned in the movie. But we know that every scene, every line, every movement is under his direction and under his control. Right? Nothing gets put in production that he does not approve. And so even though in the book of Esther, God's name is not mentioned one time, the only, Bible, the only book in the Bible that has that, we see God's fingerprints all over this book. And so let's have a quick recap here. So, so Esther, she's, she said, okay, if I perish, I perish. I will go to the king. I will make this petition for the sake of my people. She doesn't know if she's going to live or if she's going to die. So that leads us to our first point is that Esther takes a step of faith. Starting in chapter 4, verse 15. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, and hold a fast on my behalf. And do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. So before Esther goes and takes this risky step to go and speak to the king uninvited, she prepares herself spiritually. For three days, she and her fellow Jews pray and they fast. Again, even though God's name is not directly mentioned in the book of Esther, we see here how he is involved and they are seeking his help. Esther was going to do the right thing, but that didn't mean that she did not need spiritual preparation. 
Esther knew what to do. She knew that what she had to do was the right thing to do. There was no ambiguity as far as whether or not it's good to save your people from genocide. But she took the most important step first, which is that of prayer. And for us, for myself, I think that is often the often most overlooked step, is it not? We, we see something that needs to be done, we do it. We think this is right, this is wrong, we take care of it. And we never stop and ask for God's involvement. Esther paused before she did the right thing, and she fasted, and she prayed, and she begged God for help. I think her desperation of the situation led to her spiritual preparation. She's like, I I can't do this on my own. There's no way that I have any control over these circumstances. Only God can make something good happen out of this bad. And that is why she came to him in prayer and desperation. But then, of course, her faith leads to action, right? She says, she ends chapter 4 with saying, if I perish, I perish. That means she doesn't know what's going to happen. Esther has not read the rest of the story like you and I have. She does not know what happens in chapters 6 and 7 and 8. She doesn't see that. For all she knows, this might be the last chapter of her life. She might go to the king. He's like, hey, Vashti messed with me. Now you're messing with me. You're gone. She doesn't know what's going to happen. And yet, in spite of that, she steps out in faith and obedience because she had prayed, she had prepared, and she knew that God had called her to do this thing. So imagine, she's, she's hungry. She hasn't eaten in three days. She's full of fear. No one's done this before. She steps before the king. And by God's grace, the king just so happens to extend his scepter. She's allowed to come to him. God is in control. Our faith is measured less by what we say and more by what we do. Right? Our, our faith is measured less by what we say, but you really see faith come to life when we look at our actions. What you do speaks way more volumes than what you say. We can say, oh yeah, I, I trust God. But when the going gets tough, how do you respond? So yeah, I want to be radically generous. I want to be biblically driven. I want to be personally involved. All these things we talk about as being Hallmark members. But when it's inconvenient, when it's difficult, when it's scary, when it's new, what then do we do and how do we respond? So in chapter 5, let's see what happens. Verse 1, on the third day, Esther puts on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace in front of the king's quarters while the king was sitting on his royal throne inside the throne room opposite the entrance to the palace. And when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight. And he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. And the king said to her, what is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given you even to the half of my kingdom. The king knows that Esther did not just show up, risk her life for no reason. He asked her, hey, what do you want out of this? And then verse 4, Esther says, if it pleases the king, let the king and Haman come today to a feast that I have prepared for the king. Then the king said, bring Haman quickly so that we may do as Esther has asked. So the king and Haman came to the feast that Esther had prepared. So her life is spared and she prepares for them a feast. She says, hey, I'll tell you what's going on around dinner. God's pathway to purpose for us is that we put him first and then we take action. As long as you and I have a small view of God, 
as long as you and I do not have the desperation that says, I cannot live my life, I do not want to live my life in my own power, strength, or wisdom, we will not seek him first. But when we wake up every day realizing that we are powerless against our own flesh, powerless to defeat the sin that has defeated us for so long, we are powerless to influence anything that's happening in this world on our own, when we wake up with that recognition and that desperation, that should drive us as Christians to our knees in prayer. Sometimes that should drive us to fast. Fasting is a difficult thing for us Baptists to deal with, I know. But sometimes God calls us to withhold ourselves from food for a time because the situation is that serious. Because the situation, we are so desperate for God to be involved, we are so desperate for God to intervene, that we say he is more important to us than the food that we eat on a daily basis. The day we realize that the battles that you and I face are not material, they are not physical, but they are spiritual, is the day that you and I will spend more time on our knees in prayer. The strongest believers throughout history have always been men and women whose lives are bathed in prayer. They're not hurried along by their schedules. They're not distracted by the events of the world. They know that no matter what, God is in control. God is good, and he has the final say as the director. Because it's not by chance, but by direction. Our world today does not need more Christians who just have the label of Christian and show up to a Sunday service and go home and the rest of the week live their lives without power or fellowship with God. Look around the world. Do you see the darkness? Do you see the spiritual hunger? Do you see the, the, the waves of evil that are coming in on every side? What our world needs today is not weak Christians who say, you know what, I'm going to do things in my own power, my own strength, my own wisdom. What the world needs today are Christians who recognize our desperation for God, and we spend time in prayer, empowered, emboldened by the Holy Spirit. That's the only way that you and I will make any impact for the gospel in the world today. Because you, you look around, the forces of evil are strong. But God is stronger, and God has a plan and a purpose But the way that God has chosen to work in this world is that he works through people. And he looks for people who are desperate for him. He looks for people that spend time with him, who can hear his voice and know his voice. Because it will take a lot of wisdom for us to navigate the coming years for the sake of the gospel. We cannot just barge in, say, hey, we have the truth, and just hope it all works out. We have to approach it like Esther with prayer with fasting, and with humility. Because it's not by chance, it's by God's direction. Secondly, we have a second invitation. Look at verse 6 of chapter 5. And as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king said to Esther, What is your wish? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom it shall be fulfilled. Then Esther answered, My wish and my request is, If I have found favor in the sight of the king... And if it please the king to grant my wish and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come to the feast that I will prepare for them, and tomorrow I will do as the king has said. Now, I can't help but wonder when I read this, why a second banquet, right? Everything is very urgent. The, the life of her people are on the line. 
She has Haman and the king right there. Why would she not hear? Just say it. Hey, this is what's going on. Haman's going to kill my people and go from there. Well, like many things in the book of Esther, the Bible does not explicitly say this is why Esther asked for a second feast. But it leaves clues along the way that I think are really interesting as to why. First, we see Esther's patience. We see the wisdom that God gives Esther here. She's slowly setting the stage for this request. Again, Haman is the king's number two. She is talking about the vice president of the kingdom of Persia, if you will. You can't just come in and tell the king, hey, this guy's not good. You should get rid of him. She has to prepare the stage. She has to set the tone. And that's exactly what she's doing. See, King, king um, Ahasuerus started in chapter 1 with a six-month-long feast. And between that chapter and this chapter, he's had a couple of more feasts. So this guy likes to feast, okay? And so Esther knows that the way to her husband's heart is through his stomach. And so she says, hey, I will have a series of banquets. But it's also more than just the fact that he liked to eat. There's a subtle difference here between her first invitation and her second invitation. In chapter 5, verse 4, look at how she invites the king. She says, let the king and Haman come today to a feast that I have prepared. Right? There's, there's no conditions. There's nothing there. It's just, hey, come to this banquet. But now look at the second invitation in verse 8. She says, if I have found favor and if it please the king to grant my wish and to fulfill my request, then let the king and Haman come to the feast that I will prepare for them tomorrow and I will do as the king has said. So the first one is just attend. There's, there's no conditions there. The second invitation, she says, hey, if you will grant my wish, if you pre-agree to do what I ask, then go ahead and bring Haman and show up. So she's getting the king to publicly pre-commit to something he hasn't even heard of yet. But she's doing it publicly, right? So it's kind of a subtle, clever move on the part of Esther. The first one is just, hey, just show up, attend, enjoy the food. The second one is, hey, if you agree to do what I want, then show up. The king says yes. So she already has him a little bit on the hook. But then also here, again, timing is everything. And Esther and the people of, Is- and people of Israel, even though they are not in Israel, most of them at this point, they still are people who understand, people who remember, people who celebrate their customs. And the biggest holiday on the Jewish calendar in the Old Testament is Passover. Right? The whole uh, narrative, the whole storyline of the people of Israel, all kind of was formed in that book of Exodus, when Moses and the people of Israel flee from Egypt. And so there's some important dates at, here, dates at play here, which I know dates... Not super engaging, not super interesting, but just hang with me for just a second. I promise it'll be worth it. If you want to turn back to chapter 3, real quick, in verse 7, when, when Haman makes the decree to kill the Jews, verse 7, it says, In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, okay, so now we know what month we're in, then verse 12, Then the king's scribes were summoned on the thirteenth day of the first month, and an edict to kill all the Jews, according all that, that Haman commanded, was written. Okay, so in the Jewish calendar, Nisan is the first month, and the 13th of Nisan is what? It's Passover Eve. Okay, so we have Christmas Eve. It's a big celebration. They didn't have Christmas yet, right? Jesus hadn't arrived. For them, Passover was the major holiday. The 13th was Passover Eve. So imagine we're getting ready for Christmas Eve, and and a decree goes out on Christmas Eve that all Christians were to be killed. 
pretty big deal, right? The timing is pretty inconvenient. The timing is pretty obvious. God, as the great director, though, he's tying all this together in a very beautiful way. We don't have time to go super deep, but in Exodus chapter 12, we kind of get a timeline for what happens during Passover week. Um, on the 10th day of Passover, they were to, or of, of, of Nisan, is when the Jews would pick the sacrificial lamb. So on the 10th on the day of the month, they pick the lamb. The, the 13th day of the month is Passover Eve. The 14th day is Passover itself, is when they slaughter the lamb and they put the blood of the lamb on the doorposts. And then, if you remember the story, back in Exodus, they, they leave Egypt, and it's on the 17th day that Pharaoh and his army are drowned in the Red Sea. It's on the 17th day that God's victory is made complete over the Pharaoh and army of Egypt. Okay, so coming back to Esther, the time that she has her first banquet is on the 16th of Nisan. And she says, hey, come back tomorrow on the 17th for the final banquet. The timing of her final banquet is tied in to their Jewish Passover celebration. The same day that Pharaoh was defeated is going to be the same day that Haman, their new enemy, will be defeated. Pretty awesome, right? So that kind of explains why did they fast for three days? Why not two days? Why not seven days? Why not a month? Why did they pick three days? Because of the timing of when all this was happening. Haman puts out the decree on the 13th. They fast for three days. Feast number one takes place on the 16th. And the second, the final one, which Carlos will talk about next week, takes place on the 17th. So an already historic day will be made historic again as now two enemies of Israel will be defeated on the exact same day. Pretty awesome. Again, God is doing this not by chance, but by direction. And for us, our pathway to purpose, we have to trust God's timing. The things that God does in my life and your life, the timing of it is not usually according to our calendar. Right, we, we wish that we could tell God, hey, God, on, by, by this time, this is what I want my life to look like. In five years, my 10-year plan, my 15-year plan, this is what, what I want my life to be. This is what I want you to do for me. And that's great. It's good to ask God things. But typically what happens when we bring our plans and our schedules to God, God says, hey, that's cute. I'll put that over here. I've got something different. But he has something better, doesn't he? Just because it's different than what we want, I'm thankful that God's in control and not me. Because when I look at my life, the things that maybe I had planned, maybe I thought would have happened by X, Y, Z date, but God said, nope, it's going to be different. But it turns out it was better. And that's where we have to trust God, his timing. So I don't know when or how God will fix whatever the issue is that's on your heart and mind right now. I cannot tell you as a man when God is going to fulfill a promise or when God will come through for you or when God will answer this prayer. But what I do know is that God is in control. That he is in control of the timing as well as the result. God has many things at play for the overarching picture and plan of his kingdom. And he knows exactly when he wants something to happen or not happen. And so often we can get frustrated, right? God, why haven't you answered this prayer yet? God, why is this thing still a struggle for me? Why has this relationship not been healed yet? Why has this not happened for me? There's no particular clear reason as to why. It's just the timing is not God's timing. But there will come a day, by God's grace, he may choose to say, okay, now is the time. 
and the prayer will be answered. And you may never know the reason why. I may never know why God waited or why God delayed. But we, that's when we have to trust that God is the director. And like we say every Sunday, that God is good and he is in control. Life will be hard. Pain, sadly, cannot be avoided. The timing is not usually going to be what you and I would have wanted. But that is because God has something bigger and better at play. And we have to submit ourselves to that. It's difficult, but that's the pathway to purpose. right? Our purpose is not to craft our own, mold our own life. Our pathway to purpose is to let the director, the divine director of the universe, craft and mold and say, this is the way. Walk you in that. So then next we have a surprise execution. Starting in verse 9. And Haman went out that day joyful and glad of heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. For sake of time, let's jump down to verse 14. So he, he goes back home. He tells his family how awesome of a day it was, how he's super special because Esther invited only him, the king, to this feast. But then in, in verse 14, Then his wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, Let a gallows fifty cubits high be made, and in the morning tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. This idea pleased Haman, and he had the gallows made. So Haman comes home super pumped about the, the banquet, but then discouraged that still Mordecai is a thorn in his side. And his wife and his friends sound like a bunch of real winners. They say, hey, why don't you just kill the guy? They're like, you're number two. You clearly have the king's favor. You don't have to wait 11 months. Just kill him tomorrow. It's like, hey, you know what? Why didn't I think of that? Let's do it. And he begins the construction of the gallows to kill Mordecai. So Mordecai now, remember, his life was already in danger. But now it's in immediate danger. Tomorrow morning... Haman is planning on killing Esther's uncle. But remember, not by chance, but by direction. Why was it that just now they had this idea, they had this epiphany, that they could kill Mordecai whenever they wanted to? One of the famous quotes from Adrian Rogers is that, has it ever occurred to you that nothing has ever occurred to God? Nothing has ever occurred to God. And our pathway to purpose, recognize that nothing happens, nothing that happens in your life surprises God. I'm sure that if, if Mordecai even got word of this, it was a shock. It was a surprise. He thought he had 11 months to plan, to prepare, to pray, something for happen. Turns out he's got less than 12 hours. Surprise. That'd be nerve-wracking. That'd be discouraging, to say the least. But God was not caught off guard. The events in Israel, even yesterday, they, they shocked us, right? They shocked the world. Israel was caught off guard. God was not caught by surprise. God knew exactly what was going to happen. Your unexpected job loss, your unexpected loss of a loved one, whatever the unexpected surprise has been in your life, may have caught you off guard, may have taken you by surprise. But it did not surprise God. And I'm so thankful for that. That means he already has a plan, a purpose, a direction in place. God is not asleep at the wheel of the world. Psalm 121.4 says, Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. 
God never takes a day off. I'm so thankful for that. Sometimes it feels like he is silent. We can't see him. We can't hear him. But that does not mean that he is not working. That does not mean he is not moving, accomplishing his plan and his purposes. Nothing that happens in your life surprises God. So then finally we have the setup for deliverance. The setup for deliverance in chapter 6. So as we turn to chapter 6, it seems like things are only getting darker. Only getting worse. Only getting more complicated. But this is the night that everything changes. We see here why God moved Esther to that second banquet. Because there's some key stuff that has to happen right here at this time in order for his will to be accomplished. Starting in verse 1 of chapter 6. On that night the king could not sleep. And he gave orders to bring the book of of memorable deeds, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. And it was found written how Mordecai had told about Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, who guarded the threshold and who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And the king said, What honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? The king's young men who attended him said, Nothing has been done for him. So it just so happens that the king can't sleep this night. It just so happens that the book that the servant brings is the right book. It just so happens that the page they open to is the page that talks about Mordecai. Not by chance, but by direction. Proverbs 21.1 says, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wills. Isn't that assuring? God is in control. So the king gets this book. He, He can't sleep. All he's trying to do is rest. He's like, bring me the most boring book you can find. A history book of my own life. And they begin to read it to him. But turns out it doesn't put him to sleep. It keeps him awake. He hears what Mordecai has done. He's like, wait, I don't remember this. Like, what do we do for this guy? Like, we never did anything. They go, oh, we have to fix that. It just so happens the same guy that Haman wants to kill in the morning is the same guy that the king reads about that very night. So now we have the shaming of Haman. Now, one quick side note is that it does not seem like the king even knew that the Jews were the people that Haman wanted to kill, which is kind of crazy when if someone comes to you and says, hey, I want to commit a mass genocide, your natural first question besides saying no would be, who, who do you want to kill? But when you go back and read the first few chapters, the king never asks and Haman never specifies. He says, there's a group of people that are not good for the kingdom. I'm going I'm to get rid of them. And the king says, cool, go for it. And that's it. But now he reads about, and the reason why I think that's true is because it doesn't really make a lot of sense for the king to honor the guy he's going to kill pretty soon, right? It wouldn't make a lot of sense to honor a Jew if you knew the Jews were about to be annihilated. And so, he, so here we have God, again, working out all these small little, little details to accomplish his purpose and his story. So in chapter 6 and verse 4, and the king says, Who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he had prepared for him. So then jump down to verse 6. So Haman came in and the king said to him, What should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And Haman said to himself, Whom would the king delight to honor more than me? So Haman thinks the king is talking about him. Right? He, he just had an exclusive feast 
with the king and Esther, right? So you can't, like, fault him too much for that, but, you know, he's about to set himself up. So he's like, who else would the king be talking about? And I love even the way God orchestrates the way the king makes the request. If the king had said, hey, what should we do for Mordecai? Haman would have been like, uh, nothing, right? He would have said something different. But because the king says, what should be done to the man? Haman thinks, it's, it's me. And he goes on to tell what the king should do, starting in verse 7. For the man whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn, and the horse that the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown is set. And he keeps on going down through verse 9, basically saying, give him all of your stuff, give him your apparel, your authority, your honor, and pick someone of a high rank to walk through the streets of Susa, proclaiming that this is what happens to the man that the king delights to honor. So then verse 10, this is where it turns. Then the king said to Haman, hurry, take the robes and the horse, as you have said, and do so to Mordecai the Jew. (laughs) Wish you could have seen Haman's face in that moment, right? Was he able to keep it together? Start to sweat a little bit? So verse 11, so Haman took the robes and the horse, and he dressed Mordecai and led him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman hurried to his house, mourning and with his head covered. So put yourself in Mordecai's sandals, if you will. Right? You're the guy that ticked Haman off. You're the one that instigated this whole, like he, you're the one that gave Haman a reason to commit genocide. He hated you. And for the last few days, you haven't been eating. You're sitting there in sackcloth and ashes, praying and fasting. Your, your niece just risked her life. She's trying to get this audience with the king to tell him his number two is evil. And then you get a knock on the door. You peek through. It's Haman's men. It's like, oh, shoot. This is it. This is how it ends. It's finally happening. I guess what happened with Esther didn't work out. And they, and they take him. But they don't take him to execute him. They take him to the king's closet. They give him some awesome clothes. They clean him up. Then they take him to the royal stables. Put him on the king's horse. Like, imagine being Mordecai. Like, what is happening right now? Like, I thought we were all about to get wrecked. And instead, my arch nemesis shows up. And he's telling people how awesome I am. This is crazy, right? Imagine having that immediate answer to prayer, right? You see, God is moving. God is working. I'm sure Mordecai was encouraged after this moment, but also highly confused. Like, how did this even happen? Right? Because, again, Mordecai saved the king's life at this point years ago. And nothing ever happened. And just so happens that the night before, the king found out. And just so happens that he wanted to honor him that day. The same day that Haman wanted to kill him. Not by chance, but by direction. So God's pathway to purpose for us is that God is at work even when sin looks unstoppable. Haman looked unstoppable. He was rising through the ranks. He had unlimited power and authority. There was nothing standing in his way from annihilating the Jews. And when you look around our world today, world events with Israel or our our country or our community, you see a lot of things that seem unstoppable. Things that I don't know how this is ever going to be defeated. In your own personal life, you have circumstances you don't know how they will be resolved. 
You have sinful habits you have not been able to achieve a victory over. You have a family background that might feel has locked you in to a pattern, to a life. But remember that God is at work in all situations. There is no chance, there is no luck in the life of a Christian. There's only God's providential direction. His direction. 1 John 4, 4. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. If you are a follower of Christ, when you look around and sin looks unstoppable, if you have the Holy Spirit indwelling you, you know that greater is he that is in you than all of the evil that you see in the world. God is not surprised. God is not shocked. God is not afraid. God is not confused. God has it completely under his control. The way Tony Evans says it is you can't get all shook up when it looks like the devil has his people in charge. I get shook up when I look around, I see everything. It seems like there's only bad in the news. There's only bad people in control. And yet look what God does here in the book of Esther. You have a pretty much clueless king. You have a straight up evil vice president, if you will with unlimited, unchecked authority and power, and yet God still uses them to do exactly what he wants. And for us, we have to take a measure of peace in that. Yes, we have to have faith. Yes, there are steps of faith like Esther took. But at the end of the day, it's not up to you and it's not up to me. We have to be faithful. We have to be obedient, but know that God is the one who calls the final shot. And that should take a huge burden off of our shoulders. There's a story that I shared with my discipleship group a few weeks ago that's one of my favorite little moments in Scripture. We don't have time to get super deep, so bear with me, but in the book of uh, 2 Kings, Elisha and his servant are surrounded by an army. It's just two guys surrounded by an army. And so it's early in the morning. The servant wakes up. He looks out and says, wow, what is happening? And he freaks out, as any of us would. You're surrounded by men who are ready to kill you. But Elisha, of course, he, he does not freak out. I love this line. He says, do, do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. I'm sure the servant was like, what? There's two. I'm no mathematician, Elisha, but there's a lot of other ones. For us today, it feels like there's not a lot of us. There's not a lot of followers of Christ There's not a lot of righteous leaders, not a lot of people who are preaching the word of God anymore. There's not a lot of people doing what they should. Elisha says, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. And the servant's eyes are opened. They're given a spiritual insight. And what does he see? He doesn't see humans. He sees God's army surrounding the enemy army. God's angel armies ready to fight for his people. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against spiritual forces of wickedness in high places. We have to recognize that life is fundamentally spiritual before it is ever physical. That is why we have to draw our power not from our own experience or wisdom or knowledge, but in our daily, close, personal walk with Jesus himself. He's given us that access. He's given us that power. And we are going to be fools if we do not take advantage of that. We will be defeated 
if we try to walk this life in this world, in this culture, in this context with our own power, strength, and wisdom. You might take a couple steps, but you're eventually going down. Because God is the one that is in control. When we talk about our pathway to purpose, you know, who doesn't want to know God's plan, God's purpose for your life ahead of time? But we struggle because unlike Esther or the rest of scripture, our lives are not written on the pages of the Bible. You can't open up and say, all right, God, what do you want me to do today? And God has it listed out for you in chapter and verse. But God has given you chapters and verses to guide your life, to give you the truth that his Holy Spirit needs to speak to you and to guide you and to move you. We might not know how our stories all end, but we do know the director. You know, two steps that you need to take on your pathway to purpose. One is to recognize that God is the, is the director. He is the one that calls the shots in your life, not you. And too many of us try to wrestle that control away from God and say, hey, I want to be the one that says when, where, and how things in my life happen. And God says, no, that's my job. I'm the one that makes things happen, not you. Second, recognize that God is not only the director, God is also the star of the show. Esther, her name literally means star. But Mordecai reminded her pretty quick, didn't he? He said, hey, look, you can either obey God and do what he wants, or he will find himself another actress. But at the end of the day, his story will be completed. His will will be accomplished. And you can either take part in that, recognize your role, or God will find somebody else. All of us have a role to play, but none of us are the star. When I think about my life, oftentimes I put myself at the center of it. But when God looks at our lives, you are not the center. He is the center. If you are a Christian here today, your life exists, you exist. Your whole existence is about honoring, serving, bringing glory to God. End of story. That is why you and I exist. God is the star of the show. God is the center of history. God is the center of our lives. He should be. But when we replace him with ourselves, that's when the show gets messed up, doesn't it? When we become the center of our attention and our focus and our lives, when we put God on the back burner, on the side, then our lives will not be what he has intended it, them to be. As Stefan and the worship team come up, you know, there, there will be a time when God, as the director of your life, yells, Cut. And our time on this earth will be over. And all of the highs and the lows of your life, the things that happened that were under God's control, he will look at us and he will evaluate. Did you surrender to my will? Did you submit to my direction? Or did you try to forge your own path? Did you try to do your own thing? Did you ignore my voice? Did you ignore the mission that I had for you? If you submit to God to his direction, to his plans, to his purposes, then God has said that when you, that the scene of your life is over and you make the transition from the temporary scenes of this world to forever, to eternity, God has said that those who have submitted to him, his direction, his will, they will hear, well done, good and faithful servant. That is your purpose. That is my purpose. It's not to achieve the American dream. It's not to have a certain amount in the bank account. It's to live lives that are under the complete control, living our lives in complete submission to 
the word and the spirit of God. And too oftentimes when we take control, when we fight for what we want more than what God wants, we miss out on the blessing. Esther could have missed out on the blessing that God had for her. But instead she humbled herself and she submitted and God used her. God takes all of the evil, all of the circumstances that are out of, out of our control, and he turns them to good. That is what the whole gospel is about. The Son of God comes to earth. He proclaims the good news. He preaches. And what happens? Satan and his forces kill him. It seems like, like we sang about earlier, that all hope was lost. The Son of God was murdered. Yet it was that death that God used to provide salvation for you and for me. That is how awesome and powerful God is. He takes the worst thing in human history and he makes that the means of our salvation. God wants to take the worst thing in your life and use that as a means to bring him honor and bring him glory if you will let him. Would you pray with me? Father God, I thank you so much for this chance you've given us to gather around your word and to see how our lives, our circumstances, what happens on the world stage is not by chance, but is by your direction. And we thank you so much for that, Lord. And Father, I pray for myself and for my church family here that as we look at this, as we hear this, that we would indeed, as best as we can, Lord, submit ourselves fully to you, that we would give up control that we would give up trying to uh, be in control of the timing and our circumstances and worrying about the future and worrying about what's happening in the world today. But instead, we will look to you, the author and finisher of our faith. We would spend our lives in constant prayer before you because we are in desperate need for you. Lord, create in me and in our church a desperation and a hunger and a thirst for you that will never be quenched, Father, that we will always be panting, desiring you above all else, Lord. And Father, for those who are here this morning who are not followers of you, Father, they have reason to be worried. But Lord, I thank you so much that you have provided for all of us the same means of salvation through Jesus Christ. I pray that those who do not know if they are a follower of you, that they would today admit that they are a sinner, admit their need for you, admit that they no longer want to be in control of their life, They believe that Jesus is who he says he was, the son of God who died for our sins on the cross and rose again the third day, defeating sin and death once and for all. And that they would confess that Jesus is Lord, that he is the master of their life and they give control of their life now and their eternity over to you. Father, if there's anyone here this morning that needs to do that, give them the courage, give them the faith, and give them the humility to do that now. Pray and ask all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. As the band plays, if you want to spend some time here at the altar or there at your seat in prayer, if you want to talk to me, I'll be here down front. I'll be happy to pray with you. Let's sing together.